I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable, interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. I'm Nicola Golombic. I'm the founder and chairman of the Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator. So my solvable is to reduce significantly youth unemployment in the South African economy and increase young people's access to future work, uh, which is going to be globally and locally sustainable. South Africa has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. Nicola's organization, the Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator, says that about 40% of this generation of 18 to 34-year-olds are expected to never secure stable work. Imagine what that does to an individual, and then imagine that it's happening to 40% of young people in your country. The impact is enormous, not only on the individual's well-being and health, but imagine the loss of potential, missing out on the skills and energy of these people who really should be shaping the country's future. In South Africa, that lack of opportunity is still skewed by the legacy of apartheid and now alongside rapid globalization, which has left many young people geographically removed from job opportunities. You see, under apartheid, non-whites were forcibly moved to areas far from city centres, and that inequality endures today in the time and money people have to spend travelling even to find work. A 2016 study found that young unemployed people spend 560 rand, that's around $38 per month, searching for work. And that's more than the average per person income of their households. Our guest today, Nicola Golombic, is tackling the issue head on. She's trying to bridge the gap between the skills unemployed young people have and the skills potential employers are looking for. Harambi is working on all sides of the problem. 
They're working with the government to create jobs in tourism, conservation, and in building a green economy. They're also training unemployed people, and they're training employers, so that the employers can look beyond paper qualifications and see real-life skills. It's cool how they work. Nicola uses face-to-face -face methods coupled with big data, and that work is now spreading beyond South Africa. Okay, let's listen to Nicola now in conversation with Anne Applebaum. Can you describe to me the problem in a nutshell? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? South Africa has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. And that has multiple dimensions. Firstly, our economy is just not producing enough jobs and will most likely never produce enough jobs to absorb the young people that we have. Secondly, we have an education system that is not preparing young people for the world of work. And thirdly, we have massive inequality in South Africa. So even the opportunities that do exist in the economy are not accessible for young people from poorer households um, who don't have the social networks or the means to access those opportunities. Why is this such an important problem to solve? So if we talk about global inequality and uh, sustainability, Households around the world have to feel that young people can transition into an economy and provide for families. Otherwise, we just do not have a stable social core. So it, it's really vital that young people feel that they can progress, young people feel they have opportunity, young people feel they have mobility in society, both in order to sustain social cohesion as well as to actually grow productive economies uh, into the future. And in South Africa today, as I think is becoming the fact in many economies around the world, young people who should be an asset as the working age population are actually trapped outside of the economy. When one looks at a problem like youth unemployment, which in South Africa is much higher than it is in, in many other parts of the world, how does someone like you begin to tackle it? How do you break the problem down in your head? So we've decided to be really pragmatic, actually, in solving the problem. The first starting point was to understand where, in fact, are opportunities in the economy and where are they today and where are they likely to be in future? And then to understand who are the young people that we have? What is their actual educational and readiness for work? And what are they capable of? What are their assets? What are their attributes? And how might we match the young people we have the opportunities we have in a better way. And where we find gaps, what is the shortest, quickest, and most efficient way to close those gaps? Not falling back on the traditional models of needing to send people to university for multiple years or needing to create entirely new jobs. Is Can we work with young people to close gaps in a much more agile way, to judge their potential in new ways? to be able to see attributes that they have that might be suitable for existing jobs? Can we also work with employers to change the way they hire? Can we change the way employers judge the potential of young people? Could you give some examples uh, of what you found when, for example, when you looked at young people? What were they lacking? And what was it that you can give them that, did, that wasn't already available through the, through the educational system? So when we worked with employers in some growing areas of the economy like global business services, back office processing and banking. Employers still today, despite tech, 
were hiring people into those jobs and were tending to seek graduates for those jobs. And we were like, well, do those jobs really require graduates? They were also running mathematics tests for a number of those jobs as screeners and were screening people out. In South Africa, most young people, and especially those from poor families, will not have studied mathematics at school and will not have performed well in mathematics. When you actually looked at the jobs, they didn't require mathematics. And they certainly didn't require university degrees. Employers were just using those as screening proxies. So what we were able to do is then look at the young people and say, well, what do I need to be a really great call center agent? Or what do I need to be a really good customer service facing individual? And of course, what they needed was great conversational competence. What they needed was to be well-versed in English. What they needed was to be able to multitask on a computer. And all three of those actually may be things, well, so in the case of conversational competence, that may be an attribute they already have. In the case of learning to multitask on a computer, it may be a case of, I've never seen a computer, but I've got a high learning potential, and if you give me one, I'll learn really quickly. And in the case of practicing English, that's an opportunity to speak to somebody who speaks English rather than going back to school. So, you know, what we were able to do is then partner with the government to try and redirect some of the training spending that's happening in government, some of the skills money that is being, in fact, vast amounts that are being spent by both government and the private sector on training young people that isn't relevant to the work that's available and that just frustrates them further because they spend their own money and their own time and the government's money being trained and still don't actually have the basic competencies they need for the jobs that are available. So what we've been trying to do is find these short solutions, quick solutions, much more efficient solutions that give young people just the leg up they need to get into their first opportunities and make their way to get a foothold in the economy. Can you give me a specific example of a kind of short-term program or solution, maybe an individual that you've met? And what kind of training do you mean? in the short term? So for example, some of the programs are a few days long to prepare somebody for customer service roles where they haven't been customers themselves. They come from a poor family and they haven't had the opportunity to just kind of engage with strangers and communicate in English with strangers. And a lot of that is just about the confidence to find one's voice and engage, uh, particularly in English. Many of them have been sitting at home unemployed and just getting used to the fact that they have to stand on their feet all day becomes a really important part of the training. It's a simulation of the work that prepares people to behave in a different way. Getting ready to actually and make a plan at home to get places on time is actually something, you know, punctuality is something employers really, really value. It's the thing that's most likely to get a young person fired in South Africa is not arriving on time. But actually navigating transport systems in big cities when you're poor is a difficult process, especially if you've got childcare concerns as well. So a lot of our training is is not really training. A lot of it is behavioral simulation. A lot of it is preparing young people to be ready to, to take on the challenges that that world of work will present for them. So that's like a simple example in retail. But another one, you know, would be you know, when I say a short program, perhaps an, you know, an eight-week program where I am practicing and improving my, my written English communication or I am practicing my spoken English communication 
I am demonstrating problem-solving capabilities that would be relevant in the financial services job that I'm going to go into. And a third example would be a, perhaps a six-month program where I'm actually, despite the fact that I didn't do or succeed in mathematics at school, I'm actually born to code. And somebody has found that out about me, and they're now going to put me through a coding boot camp, which is not just going to accelerate me into coding despite my absence of good schooling, but also going to give me the kind of behavioral readiness to work in teams, to collaborate, to problem solve in the way that I'm going to need to do when I land in a junior programming role. How do you work with employers? How do you change their prejudices about young people and who would be a good person to hire and who wouldn't? Is that a kind of a training course they have to go through as well? You know, the change management journey with employers is probably the hardest part of this journey. And some of the tactics that we've employed over the, the last seven years that have really paid off is, is understanding that employers are most influenced by other employers. And so Harambi started with some early adopter employers who agreed to create the proof point and then also to be advocates with other employers about the fact that this cohort of young people could demonstrate the potential to do these jobs, could perform in these jobs. What we were able to do also was, uh, right from the outset, gather a lot of data and create the evidence base that we needed to be able to demonstrate this evidence of this, that the young people could meet certain benchmarks in terms of their psychometric and competence potential. So a combination of a lot of relationship-based change management work with employers, as well as data and evidence to back this up. I think has allowed us to go from having five employers as partners at the outset to now having over 500 employers who on a routine basis are accessing young people from this pool. Can you give me some idea of the effectiveness of the program? How do you know that this is working? So I think the first thing is that Harambi now is starting to operate at system scale. So we have half a million young people in the Harambi network and are going to have one and a half million young people in the network by 2022. Also, by that time, it will mean that for every cohort of young people exiting the schooling system or the education system every year, the, the large percentage of those that would normally fall out into not being in education, training or employment by the end of the first year will now be on a pathway. They will be in a positive network, they will be improving their employability, and they will be getting access to information about opportunities. So that is a, a system scale solution for the country. Harambi is in partnership with the greater city region of Johannesburg around being a clearinghouse for young unemployed people across the city. And I think that that model is a replicable one and is also being adopted nationally by the national government to work in tandem with the Department of Labor to manage the pathways of young people from learning to earning. And I think that as the Harambi platform becomes uh, scalable to the system, we're also seeing the dramatic impacts that it can have. It doesn't just translate into more young people from poorer households accessing available opportunities. We're also able to start working with growth sectors, different industries that are growing, new job families that are growing, and to be able to almost plan ahead how we can prepare cohorts of young people for the jobs of the future and, and to be able to match them 
to areas or parts of the country on a place-based basis where we can say, you know, we're going to grow these industries here. How do we get the young people here ready for those jobs? And so that allows us to, in a very kind of agile way as a country, start to at least the growth that we do have, make it work for our young people and particularly our poor young people. So imagine there's a young person in South Africa who's finished school, who's unemployed, who wants to be employed. What exactly are the steps that he has to go through in order to get a job? And how, how does he find out about you? How does he, what, does he access a website? Do you find him? How does it work? So young people can access uh, Harambi and mostly Wood through a mobile platform, which is, doesn't require a smartphone or a lot of data. It's pretty much free for them to apply to Harambi. They will get called back. And we find that while we gather a lot of data from them on the mobile phone, it's really important to have somebody interacting with them in person. They really appreciate somebody taking the time to understand them better, to understand their circumstance better, and to make a connection with them. And having made that connection, we're then able to sustain that connection through the mobile network and through ongoing interactions with young people who get offered things over time, depending on where they are, what their attributes are. So they will be given a range of assessments, and those assessments will tell us a lot about their eligibility for different kinds of roles in the economy. But we're trying to use assessments that are not traditional ones. We're trying to use assessments that don't exclude young people based on their education uh, qualifications, that don't exclude young people based on their poverty and social circumstance, but that rather can go through those and see the potential of young people, their attributes. You know, it may be that what employers will say is, we're looking for grit and resourcefulness and problem solving. Well, a young person who's been struggling to stay in school and get themselves through school, responsible for many things in a poor household and dealing with you know, financial issues day to day has demonstrated a huge amount of grit and resourcefulness, which if we are able to capture that and demonstrate that in the profile of that young person may mean that an employer can really see their potential and understand that they can be an asset in the workplace. So Harambi's process involves a lot of new proxies and new assessments that we're using to judge young people's potential. If they stay in the network, they can also grow their profile. So they will be nudged and encouraged to improve things about themselves or gain elements of their profile that would strengthen their likelihood to succeed in the economy. If they're eligible for and could access an opportunity, for example, that required them to have conversational English, like a great tourism job or a job in a call center, which in a South African context would be a high quality job for these young people. You know, can we nudge them to an opportunity near where they live, where they could practice their English? Can we link them to an opportunity to retake one module of mathematics if they were going into or eligible for a job that really did require that? Could we take their theoretical qualification as an electrician and give them an opportunity to, to, to visit an institution where they could actually apply what they've learned for the first time because they won't have had that opportunity before. So these are very practical nudges and opportunities that we would constantly provide to those young people to what we call bring them closer to work and then have them in this 
very sophisticated data-driven network that also then has demand-side intelligence, knows about all the jobs that are available in the economy and in the geographies in which these young people live and are able to match them and link them to those opportunities on an ongoing basis. So your process is really quite individualized. You have teams of people who work for you, who are accustomed to speaking to young people across a wide range of, very wide range of languages and cultures in South Africa, and then personalizing a program for them. Although we have half a million young people in the network, we talk about it's, you know, it's 500,000 cohorts of one. And every individual in the network should feel like they're on their own personal journey, that there are young people at the other end of, a, of a, a call that can speak to them, that understand and have empathy with their circumstance, uh, who until fairly recently were in the same position as them and have now made it into the economy and can guide and advise them. Um, and they should feel like the profile that they receive and the advice and nudges that they get are highly relevant and appropriate to them as an individual and to their personal circumstance, where they live, the kind of household they're in, the kind of financial means that they have, the kind of transport systems they can access, and the kind of school that they went to, and that what's on offer should feel highly personalized for them. But obviously, to do that, we've had to build very scalable um, systems, which in include tech and cloud-based systems that in, uh, enable us to gather a lot of intelligence that enables us to provide a really quality service to individuals, as well as a national call center, which means we can actually have personalized interaction with young people over the phone. And then in community services, in partnerships with government and community organizations, where we can extend services and opportunities to young people that are local to where they live. It's fascinating. It's a kind of combination of some very old-fashioned thinking, you know, one-to-one, speak to the person individually with very high-tech collection of data so that you know where the jobs are in their area and so on. Exactly. I mean, I think we fundamentally believe that people need to interact with other people. And in fact, we've built a network because they need peer networks. They need people to care about them. They need to feel that somebody is seeing them. And you can't achieve that just with a tech platform. On the other hand, the tech platform enables us to do things that simply would not be possible at scale if we were just running a kind of high-touch personalized service. Not just the data that we're able to gather, both on the demand and the supply side, but also to, once you've made a connection with somebody, stay in communication with them through a tech platform that is not just scalable, but highly affordable. Is this a system that you think could be taken to other countries? Is this, is this, a, does this just work for South Africa or do you envision it working in, in other parts of Africa or even the world? I definitely think it has application beyond South Africa. Uh, we have recently begun the process of applying the model in Rwanda in partnership with the government there and the MasterCard Foundation and others. And we have had a tremendous amount of interest from other parts of Africa, but also other parts of the world. I think the world has caught up with us on this future of work problem and also of the problem of young people and particularly poor young people being excluded from the economy. I definitely think that the solutions that we're building have great relevance globally. The way we're assessing potential, the way we're 
managing demand supply matching on a much more real-time and agile basis. And the way we are breaking through some of the barriers of the education system, I think will have relevance way beyond South Africa, probably globally. So give me an example of how your program might change the life of one individual. So let me tell you about Cindy. Um, She lives in a a poor township outside of Cape Town in South Africa, member of a fairly large family, no one in the family is working, single mom. Uh, She has a young child of her own, and the child is not in daycare. The family kind of is scrounging around food on a daily basis, accessing some government grants, pretty much run out by the end of the month. And so in that circumstance, Cindy manages to hear about the Harambee Youth Employment Accelerator. She accesses Harambee through her mobile phone and came in, by all our assessments, a really high potential individual. She just was off the charts in in her psychometric profile for the world of work and in her learning potential and ability to learn quickly. So she was successful in accessing a two-month bridging program, which prepared her for a call center job at a premier health insurer in South Africa. And one of the days on the um, training program, she was late. And it's, it's a real kind of issue in the training program to be late because punctuality is one of the most important and valued issues on the training program. And she was like 10 minutes late. And it turned out that she had been mugged on the way to the program had everything stolen from her. She was very anxious about her child and the whole situation had been really terrible. She was most concerned that she was 10 minutes late for the program because she just saw this as her ticket and her chance to shift the trajectory of her life and that of her child. She stayed on the program and still a few years later successfully landed and has kept her job. At She's now actually been promoted in this job at this insurance company One of the things that Cindy talks about, which I find most powerful, is the transformation that landing this, uh, what by many people in the global north might seem like not a fantastic job, but in her world is a completely transformative job. It's stable income. It means that the, the cash flows in the family can be relied on. It means that her daughter is now in daycare and in an early learning program. It means that the food that the family's eating is more nutritious and more regular. And she has chosen not to leave her family and leave her community, but rather stay there and be a role model to other girls in her community about the progress that they can make. And she is a, you know, an outstanding example of the 500,000, but she is just an example because we have Cindy's throughout our network. How does one go about funding a program like this? It must be very expensive. So one of the reasons Harambee has been so successful and has scaled as much as it has is because it is fundamentally built on a partnership between different employers, government, private sector donors, and global aid organizations all working together. And everybody is contributing their piece. You know, employers are paying fees to recruit young people. The government is, is able to subsidize the process of scaling the services for young people. And donors and private sector as well are able to contribute to the innovations and developing some of the solutions that are needed to be scaled. And I think that it's, it's in that magic mix that we've been able to create something that can not just scale, but also endure. 
So for people listening, people who are concerned about global unemployment, uh, maybe, maybe in your community, maybe in their own communities, what can they do? What can an individual do to help an effort like yours? Well, I mean, I think advocacy with employers is really important because employers are a key piece of the puzzle and are using very exclusionary tools to assess young people and their potential and are stuck in quite traditional ways of recruiting and managing human capital. And I think we we need a, a breakthrough in the way employers behave and a much more inclusive approach to hiring. So anybody who's in a position to be a great advocate for that within business, I think would be a tremendous asset to this process. I think the second thing is, you know, that governments need to think differently about human capital and about the deployment of government resources in ways that unlock the potential of young people rather than just fund legacy education, training and higher education institutions that may actually sort of be barriers to young people growing their human capital and participating in the economy. Um, So people who can exercise influence in those worlds, and I think that's a great area of advocacy. And then, of course, it's just people working with young people or people who are young people, (laughs) gaining the confidence and uh, a new sense of self, which is not blinkered by all the traditional ways of measuring their value and their readiness um, to contribute to community, to, to society and to the economy. And I think awakening young people to what they are capable of, what value they bring and how they can be contributors. Any young people who can lead other young people in feeling and believing that, I think will be a tremendous asset. Nicola Golombic does not mince her words. Scaling up the work of Harambee and ensuring South Africans have the right to dignified work, that will take a lot of changes. Employers need to change, the government needs to value human capital in a different and better way, and young people need to understand what they're capable of and just how important they are. Also, the punctuality thing, yikes. Poor Cindy, I'm so glad to hear she's doing well today. There is huge potential and a huge need for Nicola and Harambe's model to spread. The International Labour Organization says that in 2018, youth unemployment globally, it was three times the rate of adult unemployment. So it's regarded as a global crisis. And Harambe as a solvable, well, it could be used all over the world. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation, with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter, and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.